0: You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of The Village Church. This is Josh Patterson. On today's episode, we're discussing apologetics and tough topics with Joshua Ryan Butler. And we'll jump into our new segment called Slow Takes, discussing stranger things. Moving on to the discussion of apologetics and hard topics with Joshua Ryan Butler. Kyle Worley, who's a minister at the Village Church Institute, will be joining us with this conversation. Joshua is a pastor of a local and global outreach at Imago Day Community Church in Portland, Oregon. He's also a theologian and apologist, the author of The Pursuing God and the Skeletons in God's Closet. Joshua, thanks for being on the show with us.
1: Thanks, you guys. It's great to be here.
0: Okay, so we're just going to jump right in ask you this question. So in a culture growing, hostility, it's dismissive towards Christianity. You know, the kind of the, the favor that Christians have enjoyed over the centuries is kind of waning. And, and then we've got these really difficult topics, uh, topics like hell, judgment, holy war. And rather than avoiding those topics, you actually just run headway into those. Let's just talk about why. Why, why did you choose to jump into this? Why shouldn't we uh, be afraid of these topics? Uh, we appreciate your approach on this, and so I'd love to hear why.
1: Definitely, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think, you know, there was a day where I think if you wanted to find kind of the tough objections to the faith, you had to sort of go looking for them, you know, have to go to the library and check out the book and <laughs> uh, dive into uh, sort of search for it. And today, I think it's moving the other direction where just these questions are coming at us. And a little bit of my own story, you know, I was in college, I had a, just a radical encounter with Jesus that turned my life upside down or perhaps better yet right side up, you know, and I just found immediately kind of a, a bombardment of you know, questions from friends and roommates and all, just going, yeah. You know, I'd be saying like, man, Jesus is so good. I had this encounter with Christ. He's amazing, and I, I just want to be talking about the goodness of God. Uh, but my roommate's first question was like, so do you think I'm going to hell now? You know, and like I didn't even bring up that topic and. Uh, you know, how can you believe in a, a, you know, religion that's responsible for so much violence, and just look at the Old Testament and, and things like that, and um, so I found that I'm not unique in that regard. I think that for a lot of us, it's not necessarily that we're going out looking for the questions as much as the questions are coming out looking for us yeah. so to speak, and and over time, uh, those questions became my questions as well. I started to wrestle with them and go, oh, well, what does the Bible say about this? God, what 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 do you say about this? And um, and I found for a lot of us, you know, that there are many of us have family and friends in our church. You know, I'm a pastor here, and many people in our church have family or friends who walked away from the faith because of topics like this, and they've struggled to know how to walk with them. And I think it sort of left this overarching sense where I think a lot of us fear that God's sort of hiding these skeletons in the closet, these tough topics where I think the fear is if we were to open up the closet doors, open up Scripture and look, uh, that we'd find that God's not truly good or worthy of our trust. But I think it's because we often have a caricature of what's actually going on in the biblical story. And, and God's not keeping the closet doors open. God himself is, you know, written. He has He has his story. He's not trying to hide the biblical story. God is inviting us, I think, to look inside. And, and so one of the things that I'm uh, hoping to do is just to try and help offer some uh, paradigm shifts that have helped me over the years where we can see these topics arising because of the goodness of God, uh, not in spite of it or in contradiction to it, because uh, historically, I'd say you know, uh, robust historic Christian theology has held that God's goodness is driving the fullness of the story. That that God is good through and through all the way down. And and so one of my big steps I've actually found pressing into these topics has helped me reclaim a greater confidence in the goodness of God. And and uh, that's what I want to you know hope. My hope is for others who who would jump in as well. Because uh, I think if we can encounter God's goodness and even some of these toughest t- toughest topics, then we're going to have a lot more confidence in boldness and just uh, the goodness of God in every other aspect of life.
0: So if I could just kind of reframe a little bit what, what you've said, because I really appreciate that. In in thinking about, oh, there's this part of God that we'd rather not discuss, we'd rather not talk about, because if, if this was really known about him, it, it would somewhat be an assault on his character. And we've been kind of over here, wink, wink, saying, no, he's, he really is good. He really is good and and you're reframing this for the audience and for the church and and for those who are not even in the church but for that greater and wider discussion saying no 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 this actually flows from his goodness he is a good gracious loving god and and these things yeah. like hell judgment and holy war flow from his goodness now that that's a little crazy so let's talk about that right how how do these things flow from his goodness? How does how does it fit? How is it woven together?
1: Yeah, you know, I think often uh, we the caricatures arise, in my experience, because we have uh, often these topics within the wrong, broader storylines. So uh, the analogy I use is like a, a puzzle where my daughter, she was young, you know, she had these two puzzles. I remember one was of a forest and one was of these sea creatures in the ocean. And uh, if you were to take kind of one of the puzzle pieces of the sea creature from the ocean and try and plug it into the uh, picture of the forest, it would, wouldn't fit, the colors would be off, it, it would look funny, and you'd be going, why Why won't this, why won't this fit, why won't this work? And I found that often, I think, with these topics, it's, um, if we get the overarching storyline wrong, uh, the topic just doesn't seem to make sense. And so uh, one of the things I'm trying to do uh, in the skeletons book is to try and uh, reframe some of the caricature stories that our culture tells with more of the gospel storyline and how it starts to make sense of the topic. So uh, to use the example of hell... I think the storyline that most people often have in our culture today is one uh, that would say, well, right now I live on Earth, and one day I'll die, and when, I'll die, uh, when I die, I'll either go up to heaven or down to hell. And so it's sort of a storyline of Earth now, heaven, and hell later and you can start to see in that picture how heaven becomes like this place of reward for the good folks and hell a place of torture for the bad folks kind of thing. Uh, but I think the biblical storyline is actually different. The biblical storyline would be that God creates a good heavens and a good earth that are then torn apart by the destructive power of sin, death, and hell. And it's because God is good that He's coming to reconcile heaven and earth from the destructive power of sin that we've unleashed. God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth, as I say. You're know, kind of not to get us the hell out of earth as much to get the hell out of us on earth and to banish all those forces that stand unrepentantly opposed to his good kingdom. And when we get that storyline in place, we start to see a tough topic uh, like hell arising because of the goodness of God. It's because he wants to redeem and reconcile and restore his creation and the human community from the destructive power of our sin. And the question is, do we want to receive his goodness or, you know, that's come for us in Christ through the cross, or do we want to resist and kind of cling to our independence and autonomy from God, Um, which ultimately then, you know, the question becomes, man, are are we willing to receive the pursuing goodness of God or do we want to cling to life on our own? So that would be an example with that. You know, I think uh, to use another example from the book, the um, topic of, of, uh, Holy War. I think a common storyline that people will tell with that one is sort of, you know, it's just one more example of the strong using their gods to justify the conquest of the weak. But uh, when we dive into the I see, I think we see a very different picture. This is God arising on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong when it's been raging for far too long. That this is a God who chooses a nation of slaves from out of the mighty empires of the world and kind of takes on uh, the imperial powerhouses of the day on behalf of his weak and, uh, wandering people. And so it's really, uh, a, 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 and you know, they don't have the weapons, they don't have the manpower, they don't have the strategy or strength that all the surrounding, uh, powerhouses do. Their only chance is that God is the one who fights for them. And I think that actually becomes a source of hope for the marginalized and oppressed of the day that God is patient with kind of the structures and the things of our world that stand against him. But ultimately that God is coming to to judge and to redeem, that, that God has come in to actually set things right and establish his kingdom. And So, uh, so those would be some examples where I think um, when, if we get the overarching storyline wrong, then it, we can start to see these topics as conflicting with the goodness of God. But when we sort of get the puzzle picture, <laughs> the right puzzle picture in place, it starts to make sense more as uh, we can see this coming because of God's goodness
2: for the world. Like, you know,
1: you keep talking about the
2: overarching storyline, and I, I think my experience. One of the reasons, like we we just started preaching through the Book of Exodus. We'll be in Exodus for eleven months, and um, part of the pressure I, I know I feel uh, as a as a preacher is that I mean, even preaching Exodus, right? That's Book Two of Five, all telling one story, and and so you can see how easy it is to to not understand these ten verses when, when in reality it would be like watching three minutes of a four-hour movie and trying to understand it. And, and so I, how much is biblical illiteracy, uh, especially among evangelicals, playing into um, really the inability or the fear around these questions?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think the biblical literacy, particularly with the Old Testament, one of my yeah. one of my hopes has been to really help people really reclaim an appreciation for the Old Testament. Because so I found for many today, it's, it can be kind of intimidating and scary, you know, to, to dive in. But when you do, I think that starts to really give you that that overarching storyline. Uh, and I, I was thinking, you know, I had a friend once that was funny. He shared a. Uh, video clip or whatever and it was from mary poppins you know it's a cute children's movie and all that but someone had taken like um just these snippets from throughout mary poppins and combined them into this trailer that looked like it it was was a scary movie yeah i saw that (laughs) 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 and every you know it wasn't like they they added extra content everything was actually from mary poppins and the, the whole deal you know but suddenly you had like this dark clouds and this woman coming down from the cloud's umbrella, you know. And I think often it can feel like, uh, for some people, it can feel like that with the way that our culture depicts Scripture, you know, uh, where yeah. it's almost like we'll pull out kind of these three verses here and these two verses here and these two here, and, and we'll compile them together and go, here's what your Bible portrays. And if we have a biblical literacy, it can become easy to get convinced out of, of, Oh, is that really what I'm supposed to believe, you know? Uh, but I do think that uh, really— diving into the fullness of God's story in scripture and coming into that as our authority, we start to see it's a radically different picture than the you know, quote-unquote horror movie that our, our culture can sometimes depict it as.
3: Yeah, Josh, and I really appreciated your book. And one of the things that I felt like was one of the biggest insights from the book is that you talk a lot about the evil of Babylon in scripture. And you offer kind of this broad, more systematic understanding of sin and looking at how evil affects structures and institutions and communities. And so I think in an age where um, really it seems like the general public is more aware and conscious of the fallibility of the institutions and structures, and maybe they're a little bit disenfranchised with governments and authorities and uh, authoritarian communities. I just want to maybe ask a little bit, how does this understanding uh, of the evil of Babylon and the brokenness of institutions, how does it reshape our view of sin and evil? Maybe what's something that the Christian community has been lacking in their understanding of sin and evil because we haven't taken into account this Babylonian notion?
1: yeah, you know, it, it was interesting for me on, on kind of a personal end where uh, some of this started coming to life. I was newer Christian. I was working overseas. Uh, first person in Thailand and the uh, border of Thailand and, and Burma with a uh, anti-trafficking organization and just became just, oh man, just horrified at sort of the structural systemic uh, realities in, in the community we were in. As many as 90% of the girls over 10 years old have been trafficked into Ugh. the sex trade. And so you know, there were there were more than just personal decisions. You know, there were, there was there were systemic factors going on to what was happening. Many of the indigenous communities there had lost their lands over the last 40 years to international development, and that had put them in a position of uh, really being uh, marginalized and vulnerable to the exploitation that was taking place. So there were these massive systemic issues. But then, as I was you know kind of just praying and Jesus, man, what what is going on here? Please, God, bring your redemption. How, and I, I was reading through the, the attitudes at the time and came across, you know, where Jesus says, you think because basically, you know, you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't commit adultery, you're okay. But I tell you, if you've been lusted after a woman in your heart, that's where the problem, the problem is at. And I became convicted of going, man, the, the image I had was almost like uh, the lust or greed or thing, pride and things in my heart were like this, this wicked root. And then you have these systemic realities that are like these kind of wicked, gnarly, big trees in our world that the root of sin in our heart has given rise to. Um, Or working in kind of post-genocide areas later and this image of like, man, the pride and the rage and things are like this wicked spark in the human heart, but it can set our world aflame in kind of these massive, bigger, (laughs) structural and systemic levels. And I think we actually see this a lot in Scripture that... um, You know, sometimes in some circles we can uh, emphasize—I think Scripture speaks to both personal responsibility as well as systemic issues, and sometimes we can emphasize one over against the other, but I think Jesus really holds them both together. And so uh, as I look through Scripture and just go, man, this is i looking, reading through Scripture, and this is a major theme, uh, themes like empire and structural injustice, so if we go back into Genesis, like— in, gets unleashed in the world, and before you know it, we're building Tower of Babel, like trying to, uh, you know, build the, this monument to our name, and, and I think the language and imagery that's used is, uh, it's foreshadowing Egypt. It talks about, you know, them using brick and mortar, and Israel knew from her experience in Egypt who was making the bricks, right, like those slaves yeah. at, at the bottom of Hell's empire in Babel becomes, from there, the backdrop to God's calling of Abraham in the next chapter. But it's also like this thread that runs throughout Scripture. It's kind of the beginning or archetype of Babylon. And so we we get to the end of Genesis, and we've got Exodus. Uh, You know, we've got, in Exodus, we've got Egypt's empire that is raging against God and the earth. And, And as God calls out his people, I mean, it's true, God works in the lives of people like Abraham and Moses and David, Uh, But they're not just individuals, they're actually representatives for Israel. And I think Israel is, uh, God's kind of trying to create a systemic or structural alternative, a just community in the midst of the unjust powerhouses of the world. And if we go to the New Testament today, you know, I'd say too that that's not, it's not like that's over, that um, the New Testament by and large is addressed to the church, churches uh, as colonies of God's kingdom, uh, ordering their lives around Jesus as king and the justness of his reign, you know, setting the tone for our lives as a community that uh, God cares radically about not just, you know, he cares about both the person and the whole, you know, the, the, the system and society of the whole. So uh, for me, it's been helpful to try and um, be challenged to hold those both together, uh, being called to both the holiness in my personal life, you know, and calling us, you know, as, as a pastor calling us as a people to holiness in our personal lives and to pursuing justice in uh, the life of our neighborhood and city.
3: Yeah. Josh, man, that is such valuable insight there. Um, I want to move the target just a little bit here to start focusing in on, um, apologetics and evangelism in a changing age. You have a quote on, um... Uh, I I guess it's about three-quarters of the way through your book, and you say religious devotion is not dead in the West. It is merely migrated toward a new center. Would you maybe just explain that a little bit more and talk about how in a world that has just really changed drastically and in pronounced ways in the last decade, how should we approach apologetics and evangelism if this religious devotion has moved towards a new place? Where is it at, and how do we engage with it in a meaningful way?
1: Yeah yeah that's a great question. <laughs> still trying to figure that out <laughs> uh, <but yeah. laughs>
2: we thought that was a softball
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, it's interesting you know I would say often um you know we tend to i think in the west think of uh think of our society as you know secular- our psycho society as being a neutral society we sort of we had religion as sort of this overcoat thing, and we, we got rid of, we subtracted religion from society, and now we just sort of have this neutral playing ground. Um, but the reality is, there is uh, you know there is this underlying devotion at the heart of modern culture as well. And my city, I don't know, in our context here in Portland, it's it's less like um, I don't know the the things that will get your approval. You know, do you? Ride your bike to work and eat organic and support a humanitarian initiative in Africa. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, and those are good things. I think like traditional religious works, but they do kind of become the merits by which we justify ourselves to those around us, so by which we you know try and present like, hey, I'm, I'm a good person. I, I measure up, and um, and I think even in America at large, you know, I would say consumerism is the number one religion mm. uh, uh, in our in our culture. Like we really. Uh, the malls have become sort of our new temples, where we yeah. go to uh, achieve identity and and to, to to identify ourselves by what we consume and purchase and buy and what we wear and the kind of music we listen to and all those things. And so, um, there is sort of this. Uh, I think the tricky thing is that it it really is religious devotion. It just masks itself as not being religious, as being neutral. Um, but when in reality, I think we are. You know, we are. We, God created us as worshiping beings. We are. Oriented to things, uh, to pursue things outside of ourselves, and when we displace God as the ultimate thing that we pursue, uh, I think ultimately that becomes enslaving for us. And, and true freedom is found in reordering our lives to God. So as it comes to mission and, and all in this context, uh, one of the things that was a light bulb turning on for me was just going. I think many of us kind of recognized and and you know just going like, man post-Christendom, this isn't, we can't take Christianity for granted anymore, you know, and so, uh, and I also work overseas in places like Vietnam and Cambodia and places where Christianity is kind of newer, and for a while I think I kind of approached them as the same thing. They don't believe in Christianity here by and large, and they don't believe it back home either, and so we're going to try and approach mission in Portland as like a pre-Christian context, but what the light bulb train, I was recognizing that, well, pre christian pre-Christian culture and post-Christian culture are two radically different things. Um, uh, Pre-Christian culture maybe doesn't necessarily have the exposure to the gospel or Christianity so much yet, but post-Christian culture uh, thinks it does. <laughs> like like yeah. Our culture thinks they've already encountered Jesus and has rejected them, you know, or has encountered the gospel and has rejected it. Uh, and so, they're really... Uh, it, it, it does feel like a, a, a different challenge to go, how do we um, kind of both provocatively and prophetically confront the idols in our culture, uh, and and reveal how they're enslaving, and and present Jesus in the beauty and glory of who He is in a way that, um, yeah, a way that brings brings freedom and 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 calls people into life with God and His kingdom.
2: Yeah. Let me let me ask. I'm, I'm just going to turn us just a little bit to ask a, a question that, as a pastor, I, I wrestle with, and we'll just kind of wrap up our time together with this one because it's it's. I think it's a big question. Um, wh- what's your advice to Christians, young, old? Um, theologically trained, not theologically trained, who who find themselves in these conversations about difficult topics with their friends, families, and and coworkers, peers, neighbors, uh, like like what's your advice? I I think as a pastor, what I get a sense of is that there are those in our congregation that are theologically trained and yet still aren't quite sure how to navigate these waters, and then there are those that just go, I am never going to be smart enough to have this conversation with my neighbor who I love, but I just to tell him about Jesus is to have to answer questions I don't know. How to answer? I mean, besides buy your yeah. book.
1: Yeah, <laughs> buy my book. <laughs> by my book. I'm no, I'm joking. Uh, no, this, yeah, two main pieces of advice I usually give people, and the first one is to do lots of listening and ask lots of questions. You know, I, I think often we can feel sort of this pressure of I've got to be the answer man who comes in and you know and, and I'm going to solve it by, by by giving people the perfect. Sound bite response to their you know their deep heartfelt question and and I found actually that um, man I, I think the reality people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care kind of thing you know and, and the reality of taking the time to you know now when somebody comes and says man what how, how can you believe in hell I'd say you know my first response would usually be to ask them well, what do you think hell is like, and why is it you know and, and and to listen to their picture of it and why is it troubling to you why does it seem unjust and. And it takes some time to actually use it as a, a catalyst or springboard to listen to their heart and try and care for them. And, and when I do, you know, I'm usually able to, you know, when, when they give me, say, their depiction of hell, I'm usually able to say, well, I don't believe in that either. And <laughs> that yeah. that's <laughs> what you mean by that, I don't believe that either. And it can kind of clear the ground for, A, for them to know that, that I, I care about them and, and not just them. Um, Answer guy. And B, uh, you know, I, I think uh, clearing some space where they become interested in to know, oh well, well then, how do you make sense of this as someone who, you know, who believes this? So the first piece I, I think is, yeah, being able to ask lots of questions, really try and listen to their heart, uh, their, their story, why it why it bothers them. Uh, and the second piece is the freedom to just say I don't know. You know, I, I think often uh, we can feel this pressure of going, I, I've got to have the answer. Uh, but I think if, if we can really take the time to listen and, and you know, we can share our thoughts, but I, I found there's a freedom in when someone knows that I can hear their objection fully and tell them I don't know and yet do it from a place of still being confident in Christ and who he is and his, His, his you know, claim on my life, like I think that creates space for them to go to, oh, you know, like the, they... <laughs> They can see the same objection I'm seeing, and yet it's not necessarily shaking their confidence in who Jesus is. Uh, but then, with that, I, I, I do think that there's something beautiful. These questions have provoked me to go deeper into diving sure. deeper into Scripture. You know, it's it's pushed me deeper into the Gospel, deeper into Scripture, and into a I think a constructive wrestling with God. And I would say God's shown up there and met me there. And I, I know many others, you know, who would say the same thing that. I think God encounters us when uh, the the tensions we might feel with Scripture can either be used as an excuse to push ourselves away from God, you know, or it can be used as a catalyst to dive deeper into who He is. And, And my hope is that for us as the body of Christ, these questions that our culture is asking can actually be a catalyst for us to go deeper in His Word and deeper in our dependency on His Spirit and allow Him to kind of shape and form us in some fresh ways that could speak meaningfully to our culture today.
0: Yeah, amen. That's really helpful. And Joshua, we just want to thank you again for your work and, and the, your contribution to this conversation, helping us think through uh, just with a richer biblical theology around really tough topics. And so, again, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for your work.
1: Thank you, guys. Really appreciate the ministry of Village and the work you guys are doing. It's an honor to be here with you guys. Thanks, right, brother. brother. God, God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Let me reintroduce the idea of slow takes over hot takes. Slow takes is the new segment that we're doing here on Culture Matters where we're just taking a topic and spending some time discussing it. So uh, we feel like there are plenty of opinions that are battered about and uh, we're kind of a soundbite culture, but wanted to take some time and spend some time thinking and mulling and having a conversation, slowing the conversation down a bit. And so in this particular segment, we're going to be discussing stranger things. Um, And Stranger Things is a new show that I have never seen, probably will not see. Uh, And so part of this segment is why is this so popular? And people seem to be watching it. I'm not. I don't care. You guys do. You love this thing. Uh, I don't even really know what it is. And so I'm going to be that. That's going to be my voice, the voice of uh, (laughs) dissent. The voice of dissent. Who cares? The late adopter. So what, (laughs) what is Stranger Things? Talk to me.
3: Yeah, Stranger Things is a wildly successful Netflix show that's going on right now. Wildly? Wildly successful. It's massively popular. Um, and uh, you Even should ju- people who
2: hate it are blogging on it. Oh, yeah,
3: absolutely. And the time is not yet gone for you to jump in and be in on this show.
2: Just by 2017 when season two starts. Sure. You, you want to, to be caught up by them? Is this just a bunch of Xers looking back on Goonies and thinking – this reminds me of my childhood. Is that what's going on in this thing? Yeah, in, in, in all seriousness, I don't want to assume that everybody is watching it because you
0: think everybody's watching it. I'm not watching it, uh, and I realize I may be the minority. But seriously, what is it? What is Stranger Things?
4: Yeah, it's a – I know Kyle hit it a little bit. It's a Netflix original TV series created by two brothers, Matt and Ross Duffer. It's set in 1983, small Indiana town. A 12-year-old boy goes missing that sort of uh, sets the the plot up at the very beginning. And from there, I I don't want to give a lot of spoilers, but I would just say it sends the town into a frenzy and um, a supernatural one at that. And a lot of things, strange things (laughs) start to happen. And um, it forces a community to come together, friends to come together to figure out where this boy is and solve other mysteries that kind of come up in
2: so you said supernatural this is a christian film
3: (laughs) no i mean not quite i mean uh it it may be consistent with like the christian conception of the world in the sense of like we are we do live in a world and christians do believe that we live in a world that uh, where the supernatural has intruded in a big way so we're kind of enveloped in the supernatural even though a lot of times our day in and day uh day out life doesn't really reflect that awareness um but i think some of the like mystery of the show and the reason that it's attractive is, yes, Matt, I think you're right that it does hit on some of that nostalgia of the 80s, but the Duffer brothers are really masterful in the way that they kind of take the best of Steven Spielberg, which is like this childlike courage and acceptance of the supernatural, and they blend it together with the Stephen King approach of like uh, viewing the adults in this show as terrified by the supernatural. And so I think it's a really kind of masterful weaving. So like even if we didn't comment on like the spiritual implications of the show at all. It just stands on its own as a really good story. Yeah, and I think what it does differently, so there have been other things
4: that have come out like this about the supernatural, obviously, and then you have a movie like Super 8 that kind of tried to do the same thing. It took all these nostalgic elements. It really, that was
2: Aliens, right? Yeah, Super that was Aliens.
4: And, 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 you I did know, see that one. It was ripping off of Steven Spielberg and some of these same things, but to me, Stranger Things got more traction and It's resonated, at least for me personally, and I think on a wider audience because it has characters that you really care about. It has an an emotional core that I think Super 8 was missing, and it doesn't play it safe. So Super 8 to me was a good movie, but it played it pretty safe. It was like – and I kind of saw the newest Star Wars movie even though I liked it as well in the same way. It seemed like it was just trying to please fans, please people who were familiar with these stories and these movies from the past. This particular show – Stranger Things, I think, is not only trying to sort of please and have that nostalgia, but it's trying to push something in the new direction. And I think it does that a lot through the the characters. And it's a pretty heavy story despite being lighthearted in other moments and
2: and funny in other moments as well. So what's going on with – like you guys can help me with this. Um, Like when I'm watching a movie or I'm watching a show, like I'm – and maybe I lack depth or something because I'm just like well that was entertaining i'm I'm not thinking about kind of emotional bonds or right. core um so so talk to us just about the like the are those kind of the invisible forces that kind of hook into people um as they're watching because that's what I mean that's what I want to get like what is it that draws the millions and millions of people to to watch this show because I don't think the average viewer is thinking, I feel an emotional attachment to these kids, so so that's why I'm trying to like it'd be really helpful to understand kind of what's going on in us as humans that makes this thing and things like it. Because Super Eight was wildly mm-hmm. successful, even yeah. though it was mission it was missing what and
4: yeah, I mean, it played I, it safe. Yeah, I would say it played it safe. See, sure. I don't
2: so like I don't know what that means. I feel like I'm a I'm an intelligent human being. I like film. I I. I like the way film works I love good stories but but like I don't I don't know what that means.
3: Yeah, I think maybe some of the things, and I totally understand your question. Uh, my wife and I have been talking about this as well because she's like, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm interested just in the story. But do I always have to like kind of mind the depths of it and figure something out? You know, just like can <laughs> just we want just to
2: eat some popcorn and watch something? Can we just up? enjoy is that all right?
3: it? And I think part of it is that stories like this resonate so deeply with us um, because we know that we are a part of this kind of story, not necessarily a story about you know a monster that escapes from a laboratory and another Spoiler dimension... Alert. Right. Oh, that was Super 8. No. Well, <laughs> yeah, both and, I guess. Okay. But um, I think one of the reasons that these kinds of stories resonate with us is because here we are as modern people, and we have – like everything in the world has told us, like, oh, there's a natural explanation for everything. But deep buried down within us, we know that there's something that is unexplainable, that is supernatural. And here's a show like Stranger Things where you literally have the transcendent breaking through the walls. So, in, in it, like, that's why the adults are so terrified of it, is because they've accepted a version of the world that says there's nothing outside of the world. It's why the kids are so courageous and open to it, is because they've they haven't yet accepted a version of the world that goes, no, there's nothing outside of this world. And so it's like, you know, what C.S. Lewis said, if you could like kind of remix one of his old quotes, you know, C.S. Lewis said, you know, if I find in myself a sense of the supernatural that nothing in this world can account for, then the only logical explanation is that I was meant for Stranger Things, right? I mean that's kind of like remixing you, one of his you worked old... on that. Kyle. I did like
2: that was you last night some before, some before you right crashed out after the fantasy football draft. <laughs> no, you... I think I,
4: I think what Kyle's saying is is really important. And Alyssa Wilkinson wrote a piece for Christianity Today. Who we
2: love and respect.
0: Who we love and respect. Former, former and respect. podcast. Yeah, we had for our we, own podcast. Great.
2: Like we did. I think the decision was made that we would. She would be fun to see a movie with.
0: Yeah, she would be. Unlike. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, move on. Remember <laughs> when you
2: said I wasn't fun to see a movie with, but well, you never I actually hey guys, seen a movie here. with guys, me. Guys, we're, we're live. <laughs>
1: right? let's, let's finish <laughs> so the talk on Stranger Her
4: games. Her piece um, is, is excellent, and what it really hits – it really hits home what Kyle's trying to say, and she talks about – and this is the philosopher Charles Taylor talks a lot about this when he's defining our world, and he says that we live in a secular world that's been disenchanted, meaning that – we are naturalists. What we see is what we get. Um, science answers everything. Really, science is our God in many ways. And this is very modern thinking. And she she thinks that a, a show like Stranger Things resonates and works because because we live in a world like this, and because our world has been disenCHANTed, we are longing for enchantment. We're longing for something beneath the surface surface, something deeper, something supernatural. And then you know. Other shows and movies have had supernatural things obviously in the past. But when it's well done like this, I think it makes a big difference.
3: Right. And I think science fiction is one of those last genres that is um, self-aware in the fact that it's theologically haunted. Like we know, like as we go around the world and as we hear explanations for all of the mysteries and the wonders of the world, there is still a deep sense when you're standing like you've mentioned before in multiple sermons, Matt, there's a deep sense when you're standing before the Grand Canyon that you're not like, okay, explain to me the rock formations. Like wonder is provoked, right? Because even with the best of explanations, like like with the greatest National Geographic documentary, the greatest BBC nature documentary, we're still looking at this and going, like Andrew Peterson has said in one of his songs, don't you want to thank someone like isn't there like this sense of wonder that's evoked and stranger things is this little world and it it, that kind of presents before us this picture of going yeah you know those things that may seem unexplainable like that may be closer to the world than you think it is
4: yeah and and to answer your other question about just watching these things and in the midst of them having these grand ideas or insights that's not me i you know i watch this show and just enjoy it. I'm, I'm kind of in the moment. And I think it's after the fact that I'm stopping. I'm reflecting. I'm having conversations. I'm reading other things that people have said. Other observations that people have made. And then I start to begin to make. My own observations out of those, so I, I don't know if there's any kind of trick to as you're watching it, and I, I think anyone would probably be lying to say that like they understand all these things as they're watching it. I think it, it takes time and conversation, and we may be wrong too in some of the conclusions that we draw a lot of well, times. Well, and I, so, what I was
2: trying to get at, and you, you guys did a good job answering, is kind of the pull underneath it that makes it so popular. It isn't this kind of. I know what's going on here, but it really is kind of a subterranean pull from the soul that likes certain themes that is drawn to certain realities. And so, you you did a great job unpacking that. That's what I was. Let me ask
0: you this question, just in light of that: the idea of paying attention to what has your attention. Hmm. And so, again, I'm not seeing the show, but when you're watching the show, if you were to pay attention to what actually has your attention, does that make sense? What is it that's drawing you in? to this particular show is it is it kyle kind of what you described as the the draw into the supernatural the draw into these things that we kind of sense within us is is there and real is it great acting is it thrilling is it like what has your attention with this particular i I think
4: what makes it great is that it's a combination of all these things so the content what it's getting at in terms of the supernatural is huge but If it weren't well executed from a technical standpoint, I I don't think it would resonate nearly as well. You know, the, the actors, even though a lot of them are really young, they're great. You know, they're really compelling. You feel like you were one of these kids maybe when you were younger. Um, the The cinematography is beautiful. It's well done. It has a lot of Steven Spielberg in the way that it's shot. And so it makes you feel like you're watching – you're back in the theaters watching E.T. or Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I think it just it's, it's an all-around really good show, and that's what resonates. And, and another big thing for me that I wanted to talk about was just the theme of loss um, that's in this particular show. I think that that's something that just on a real emotional, not intellectual level – I think resonated with me is Mm. you have a lot of different loss going on in this show. You have the loss of really innocence with these kids and what they're going through. You have the loss of innocence with this teenage girl who loses her virginity in the story early on, and she's kind of there to deal with that. You have the loss of life, the death of some people. Yeah, you have the loss of life, and then you have parents, uh, a relationship, a marriage that seems like even though it's together, it's, it's transactional. Already, yeah, yeah, it's transactional, and it's already been lost. It lost, and um, you just have all these people really in the aftermath of loss and trying to deal with that. And I'm interested in what you guys think about what it ultimately says about loss, you know, and what the point of suffering and things like that. Um, would be because that seems to be a something about this show that I haven't heard a lot of people talking about, but I, I think it's it's getting at some interesting things particularly about why we suffer what it what it causes what happens out of that did you did you guys see any of that at all in terms of the the theme of loss
2: so i, I think it's hard to talk about if, if we don't want to give spoilers but at uh, this point i say we just go we open it. all the curiosity yeah, yeah doors. we can just do that we can just make sure nobody that was a joke for us it. to yeah. even try not yeah no i agree um so y- you can definitely see loss in there but i think the that there's the multiple different kinds of loss, so it 's almost hitting that subject from different angles and so you you, you have the the marriage that we reference there you 've got this woman that seems to have given up on her dreams for safety mm. um, who's unhappy but but doesn't know what to do about that, and then you've got the the loss of a son, uh, the loss of a marriage the and so it 's coming at the angle of loss from just about every direction I think you can come from so and and I'm wondering if that's not what invokes kind of the emotional emotional like I've yeah I've experienced this so every parent has a fear like I don't like I don't tend to watch movies about kidnapped kids or missing kids because I have three kids so I don't so the Because of how this was, kind of this supernatural, almost Goonies type thing, I could watch it and still kind of feel Mm. what Winona Ryder's kind of wrestling with in The Loss of Her Son. Um, But it felt safer to me uh, because of the context that it was playing itself out in. Um, But yeah, I think people are drawn to it because I think we all – Either know someone or have some experiences that line up with some aspect uh, of the film, from the sheriff's loss to Winona Ryder's loss to the loss of that marriage, to even the um, the girl, yeah, um, Barb, and, yeah, and and the loss of her kind of identity. Mm-hmm. So is this one of those things where you feel like
0: uh, you would recommend this show, or are, or are we watching it because? Um, because it's popular, like, are we? Why are we talking about this? Are we talking about it because it's popular? Or are we talking about it because we're saying, you know, what? I think we need to engage this content because it's it's saying something to us that's true. Or are we talking about it because it's popular and we're going to critique mm-hmm. what is
3: missing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think a couple of thoughts come to mind. I think one is that as Christians, um, we. We need to be aware of stories that are ringing true of the human experience. And like we've talked about with loss and suffering and then another huge element of the show is the nature of friendship and what it means to be a but friend. But what are they saying about those things? So
0: well, is it ringing true or is it ringing – is it touching a nerve but it's a, it's hollow? It's not full. Does that make sense? I would, I would, that would argue sense? that – Again, I'm not well, seeing this. like
4: Like any story created by – fallen human beings, whether it be Christians or not, I think it's going to come up short and really but they're you know, getting everything right. Yeah, sure. but I, w- I would say that most of it and that's why it's it's so fascinating and so interesting to me because it's such a popular show yet so much of it rings true and lines up with the Christian way of seeing the world in terms right. of in terms of friendship in terms of believing that there's a world beyond ours and there's even a moment in the in the show where we see this dark supernatural world most of the time but they reference in one part of the the show after right after some really difficult things happened that hey there there's this other world where There is no pain. There are no tears and um, where everything is kind of made right again. And it's just a small reference, but the show gets a lot of things like that right about the way that we're supposed to see the world. And so that's why I think it's an important show. And it's a show that I would recommend. I mean, I'd have some caveats. Oh, of
3: course. And then I think on top of that is as Christians, like just like Paul speaking theropagus, you know, quoting pagan poetry, there is a sense in which we need to be able to speak theology in slang. Like using the vernacular of the people. Like we need to be able to be aware of the things that are influential. And so this is a show that has been very influential and doesn't tell a story that is, I think, morally questionable for mature Christians to engage with. And so in that way, I think it provides a really interesting conversation point. Like the likelihood of stranger things coming up at work is far greater than the likelihood of somebody saying, you know what, let's talk about the atonement. But you might <laughs> – Well, it depends on where you work. Like <laughs> That's this, right?
0: true.
2: Is it? yesterday i think it came up
0: yeah i I talked about the atonement today sure work and stranger things
3: well well, there you go well you have a win-win but many of our brothers and sisters probably are not having the same conversation that was a joke i i received it as a joke and i extended back just some feedback (laughs) so let me say this uh again
0: uh i hope the conversation is fruitful and and helpful and it it has somewhat piqued my interest i'm not sure that i'll watch the show um, but it's football season. You're not going to watch. I'm the not show. watching the show. Uh, that's reality. <laughs> It'll be there after. I don't season. have Netflix, so there life. you go. That's a whole know. other slow take segment. Um, and really, nothing in my life has changed because of that. That's um, true. But it's true. Uh, I'm grateful for the conversation, and I feel better equipped, uh, somewhat, to know what is going on at some level in Stranger Things. And I do agree with you. Just to be able to have some of that slang, to be able to interact with the vernacular, and to take this. Theology that sometimes can get kind of positioned up in this ivory tower away, tucked away for theologians, which just is a farce. It's not of true. Course. To be able to take that and apply it and filter it. And I think, Kyle, the, the language you used last time was something about... Um, faithful improv. Faithful improv. I do like that. Just being able, able to work the muscles of applying theology as a grid and a filter to our lives. Thanks for listening to Culture Matters. If there's anything you heard us talk about on the show today that you'd like to know more about, you can find the details on our website at thevillagechurch.net. Just look at the episode descriptions on our podcast show page. Our next episode, we're going to be having a conversation with Thabiti Annabuile Looking forward to that as we discuss politics and the election that is looming in front of us. If you have any questions, let us know on media, social media using the hashtag AskTVC. See you next time. God bless.